Look, I know you don't want to be here. It's hot and dusty. Your back hurts. And you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you've been here for weeks already, but you can't just leave. This is everything. You've given up time, health, money. That's so much money for this. If you leave now, you know who will find it? He will. You'll have to listen to him gloat about it. He'll get all the credit, all the glory. No, that can't happen. You'll just have to push on a bit farther. You'll get there first, no matter what. Welcome back to Cursed Knowledge. I'm still Harper Hunt. And I'm still Ben Hunt. But today we're going to be talking about something new. We're going to be talking about the Bone Wars. I can't wait for this one. This will be fun. Yes. So, huge dinosaur fan. Well, as am I. I mean... As we should be. Yes. If you're, I think we all grow up with dinosaurs today, which I take from the subject of this talk was not always the case. No, I've... Honestly, even though dinosaurs far predate the existence of humans. Yes, that's, I, I knew that. Yes, good. Well, the human knowledge of dinosaurs is actually pretty recent. We found dinosaur bones, fossils of previous species, but we've never truly understood what they were for most of human history. This is how you get, you know, dragons, giants, other mythical creatures, because we knew that these bones belonged to something else. And it wasn't until kind of the late 1800s that this fascination and understanding of dinosaur bones really both came together and took off. Got it. So the science of paleontology is what we're talking paleontology. about. Paleontology. Nice. All right. So, so who are the protagonists here in the Bone Wars? All right. So the Bone Wars, as with any good, good war, starts with a very personal rivalry. On one end, you have Edward Cope. And on the other hand, you have Othniel Marsh. Now, Cope was kind of the, he's the child prodigy in this situation. He was a Quaker, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, and was known for his prolific writing. Now, tell me the time period now that we're talking about. Absolutely. So we are looking at, the Bone Wars took place from about 1870 to 1880. So, 19th century, Cope, child prodigy, prolific writer, published his first piece at age 19. And so, the other side of this rivalry is Marsh. Marsh is the establishment. He is the guy from Yale. His, his uncle was, was literally George Peabody. Of the Peabody Museum. Of the Peabody which Museum. Which you and I have been to many a time. Many a time. It's kind of a requirement when you grow up this close to New Haven. He is the, the typical New England, prestigious liberal arts college establishment type of guy. Very good, very methodical, very by the book. So a lot of their rivalry comes down to, you know, tortoise in the hair, young gun versus the establishment. Got it. So they were both academics or, or Marsh was for so sure. So Marsh was an academic. Cope was, this was more of a hobby for him. Now, there was definitely money to be had here. Uh, museums and universities would pay a lot of money for these bones. 
but this was almost more of a personal project for him. Well, what started the rivalry? And and I am fascinated about the idea of doing, I'll call it kind of individual science. So the rivalry started, there are kind of two big incidents that broke these two men apart. Because for several years, they had a very cordial professional relationship as peers in the field. But then one day, Cope introduces Marsh to this new site he's found. Kind of like, hey, I really respect you. Come check out this stuff I found. And then Marsh goes behind his back, bribes the owner of that site to stop sending the fossils to Cope and send them back to Yale to Marsh instead. Oh, wow. So So, this is like real sabotage here. Yes, absolutely. And then the second thing, and probably the more well-known one, is that Cope published a paper regarding his reconstruction of a plesiosaur. One of those aquatic, kind of like ancestors to dolphins, long neck, almost kind of like four, almost like wing fins. Well, the other thing to mention at this time is while they knew that these dinosaur bones could be reassembled, they had no idea what they were supposed to look like. They were trying to figure out what a dinosaur looked like. And oftentimes, you know, you are missing bones. You are not sure if it belongs to the same fossil or have you found a bunch of skeletons altogether? And sometimes you're missing the non-fossilized parts that would kind of tie it all together. So they were kind of, you know, doing their best with not a lot of information. Check out the Magdeburg Unicorn if you want a good laugh on how they would try to reassemble these fossils. They were trying to recreate an ancient uh, rhinoceros and it has two legs And its spine is completely diagonal to the floor. It And a unicorn horn. And a unicorn horn. I cannot stress how, if you want cursed knowledge, look at this image, because that is the most cursed creature. If it were alive, it would only ever be begging for death. Absolutely insane. Back to the story. Cope is trying to recreate this paleosaur. And he's very proud. He has published an article about his reconstruction in this very academic journal. And he invites everyone to come see it. Marsh is one of the first ones to come and see it. And he looks at it and he says, you put the head on the wrong end of the spine. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Huge argument over this. They eventually call over their boss, basically the head of the museum, comes over, looks at it, picks up the head, moves it to the other side. So he had the head on the wrong side of the animal. He had the head on the tail. Got it. Got it it. Was, yeah, that would be embarrassing. That's it was true. heads and tails that heads day. Heads and tails. Cope was so embarrassed because he's just published a paper about this, and he put the head on the ass. So he is telling everyone to return their copies of the journal. He's buying them all up. Very cartoonish. Marsh does not return his copy. Oh, so he like keeps it as like Marsh kept a copy, not even blackmail, just kind of as proof that Cope was wrong. Eventually, news of the incident gets out because Cope never admitted to the mistake, and the two were never civil towards one another again. Now they were kind of young men at this time, or they were both in their thirties to forties while this was going on. You know, young enough to think that they could totally just hike across most of America for ten years, but. You know, they weren't, they weren't, this wasn't the act of boys. This was the act of men. Cope, at the time that this started, was actually married and had a young daughter. Marsh never married. He was married to the work. 
shall we say. Anyways, eventually these two realize that they can't just keep staying in their little university cloisters. So they go west. This is still the days of Wild West, so they have armed guards with them as well. And they're going to places like Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, everywhere in America, because America is actually at the forefront of early paleontology, because we had so many fossils just lying around to the point where there is actually a cabin made entirely of fossils because they were just lying around that some guy was like, well, I can use this as building material. As just to build my cabin. Yeah. So it I, is easier to find fossils than to find wood. Yes, amazing. So I, I've got to ask you, do they understand what fossils work? Well, it's, here's the thing. It's actually the work that these two men did during the Bone Wars that helped us understand what these creatures were. Marsh was actually one of the people who found remnants of ancient horses here in America that kind of led you to believe like, okay, so we have an idea of what horses used to look like, and that's not what they look like now. So kind of helping to gather these pieces of information that would later be used to prove and kind of help tie the theory of evolution together. So a lot of their work was really, really important about that. And I'll get back to that later, but absolutely, they helped enormously with this. Did they know how old the fossils were? I, I mean, carbon dating wasn't a thing yet. Right. So, yes and no. I believe that they knew that these fossils were extremely, unfathomably old. They knew that this was something, you know, no one had seen in any written or obviously no living memories. But at the same time, without carbon dating, how could you look at something and go, ah, yes, that is 300 million years old. So they both go out west, and so then I guess the rivalry kicks into high gear. Yes, so then Looney Tunes starts playing with these two as the stars. They realize that they are each the other's biggest competition. So it just goes absolutely insane. They are spying on one another. You have straight up just like with binoculars from afar, like spying on where the other person is digging. Do they look excited? What are they doing? You have a more corporate espionage. You are hiring people who used to work for the other guy or sending people in to kind of get the inside scoop on what's going on. They would straight up steal from each other's digging sites to the point where at one point, Marsh was so sure that Cope would try to enter his site at night and steal the fossils that were there that he purposely left fake bones. Oh, good. I like now, that. Now, right. these, these were real fossils, but they were from a different site. So, again, you're not always sure what bone goes to which animal. So, it's kind of like if you were digging up a T-Rex and someone left, you know, uh, some, like, wing bones there. And you think, I found a dragon? I did it? Marsh was so sure Cope was going to come, he planted fake bones. So when Cope came, he found the fake bones, took them, published a great piece on it, and then Marsh got to make him look like an idiot. Again. Again. Because now Cope had to take everything back and was just discredited in front of everybody. And the other thing to know about Cope is that I think you two would have gotten along really well. Oh, glad to hear that. Why is because that? Because he would not stop writing. Oh, yay. I like that a lot. Yes. 
So whereas Marsh was very focused on doing that methodical research, he would spend so much time making sure everything was absolutely perfect, and then he would publish maybe one paper. In the time it took Marsh to publish one paper, Cope had probably written and published about 50. Wow, that's he, a lot. How many, how many papers did he publish? In total, he published around 1,900. Oh, my God. In the course of his life. Good Lord. And I've got about half that number. Keep up, man. Yeah, it's going to take me another decade. Get on yeah. his level. Yeah. Get on his level. He was constantly publishing. At one point, he published over 70 papers in a single week. Anytime he found something or had an idea, he was publishing. He even bought a magazine just so he constantly had a place to publish his papers to. Oh, that's crazy. So he did have some money, though. So he did have money. His, he had some money for, yeah. for a while. Um, but Cope is constantly publishing to the point where Marsh is like begging people to put a muzzle on him and get him to stop because Cope's got his name in all the papers. He is the one telling people what to think about dinosaurs. The problem is Cope is going so fast, he doesn't always have the details correct. So he was caught several times backdating his finds. So let's say he and Marsh dug up a fossil at about the same time. Cope would change the date of his discovery to be before Marsh's mm. to make it look like he found it first. Because the other thing going on with all of these bones and these discoveries of these fossils is that it's very much a first come first served. Are you the one to discover a new creature? You get to name it. You get naming rights. Well, what do these guys discover? I mean, any dinosaurs that I know? Oh, absolutely. So overall, they discovered several thousand new species between the two of them. Cope in particular found over 1,000 vertebrate species. Now, again, this also includes birds and fish, but he is credited with the discovery of over 1,000 creatures. Cope's problem is that he did not always do the work when it came to naming them. Hmm. He did not use the proper classification. He liked to make up his own. So a lot of his names were eventually retconned, kind of thrown out and given new ones. Oh, wow. Marsh found some, he found fewer, but he found the ones whose name you'll probably recognize because he did the work for it. Have you ever heard of a stegosaurus? Uh, come on. Yes, of course. Triceratops? Yes, that's Allosaurus? Good. Yes. Brontosaurus? Wow, those are some big ones. That's Marsh. Marsh actually, later, he had several dinosaurs named after him. So the Marshosaurus, or the Othnelia, were some of the dinosaurs that were named after him. But going back a little bit, these two men spent a decade fighting each other over who was going to be first to the dig site. They were bribing third parties to send fossils to them to lie to the other one. They were straight up sometimes like hijacking fossil shipments. Well, it, you know, I'm thinking back, the only kind of competition, scientific competition that I know kind of like that was like Edison and Tesla. That's oh, yeah. the famous one, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to think of it. I guess there were competitions between explorers, but this almost sounds like it's this combination between exploring first onto the site mm -hmm. and like the the scientific you know the tesla edison competition yeah it's it's the world's biggest scavenger hunt because on one hand you're trying you're discovering something new you're all racing for the same location for that same achievement but there's also a level of science there where you have to be very careful about your namings and classifications as cope found out it's not just enough to get there first you have to do it correctly you have to do it by the book 
in order for to kind of really get that full credit that you're looking for for it to stick yeah well what happened to these guys well cope went bankrupt Hmm. that's kind of what ended his participation in all of this is he was funded primarily through his own money his own inheritance and he made several investment decisions that failed to work out and he eventually had to declare bankruptcy actually had to sell the majority of his fossil collection oh so he like kept them he kept a lot of these fossils and marsh did too they both had significant collections that were both donated to museums uh sent to different universities but you know you keep a few things for yourself cope kept, kept a lot of things for himself that he eventually had to sell because he was broke because there was something about a T-Rex full mm-hmm. skeleton that was, you know, worth millions recently that was that was discovered. So I guess this kind of stuff still happens to an extent. But then the Peabody Museum, I guess, got a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. Basically, Marsh kind of his work became the backbone of the Peabody and later the Smithsonian oh, as wow. well. Because most of his findings were going to the Peabody and they later kind of went through the museum hole into the Smithsonian. So a lot of the famous dinosaurs that you see, in the Peabody especially, came from Marsh's work. That's pretty cool. And they never reconciled? They never reconciled. After the the incident where Marsh corrected the head placement, it was said that they never spoke a civil word to each other. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I mean, so it sounds pretty bad for Cope, right? So he goes bankrupt. He eventually got out of it, but he never went back into fossil hunting. However, he did have his family. He had a daughter. He had his wife, who he kind of abandoned for 10 years in order to go do the fossil digging. But he did have family to fall back on. Marsh also kind of bowed out in 1880, not for anything as bad as complete bankruptcy, but he was also pretty broke by the end of it because university funding can only go so far, especially when you're also engaging in spy v. spy combat against someone else. Gotcha. I mean, what's fascinating to me, though, is about the ego mm-hmm. in all this and the ego in science. And, and I I think back to my, you know, academic career and, you know, you would think that the most egotistical people you would ever meet would be in my current profession of, you know, hedge funds and managing money and the like. But that that's just not the case. The the biggest role for ego that I've ever experienced mm-hmm. has been in academia because I, the, the only way of keeping score is by your reputation. And it, 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 it really is a first to publish, a first to make a discovery, all the rewards, mm-hmm. and they're all reputational rewards, go to that person. So it, it just it just creates these incentives to be enormously ego-driven. Yeah, because as you can see by the fact that both men spent basically every cent they had on this, there was no money to be found here. There was glory to be found. But even then, it's not... These were not household names. People in academia in these specific circles would know who they were and would speak fo- fondly or highly of them. But, you know, you ask the average guy about Cope or Marsh, they're going to have no idea who you're talking about. Right, right. I mean, the other thing that struck me while you were talking about doing this this pod is the the nature of obsession Mm. and particularly the obsession of collectors. 
there's this wonderful book by uh, Susan Sontag. It's called The Collector. Mm -hmm. And there's a real pathology, meaning a it's a I find it, I think, a personality disorder for collectors. I've only known a few in my life. But it's a it's such a powerful thing that takes over your world. And so what I liked about this topic when you were talking about it or discussing doing this was this idea that the combination of, of ego, mm-hmm. right, the the clash and the conflict between these two men combined with the nature of the obsession of collecting. Mm-hmm. It's I'm trying to think of of modern corollaries to it. And I and I want to keep thinking about it. I think they are increasingly in academia, right? This conflict of ego, because there's no you can't keep score with money in academia. No one has any money. That's just a given. But I also think it really happens outside of academia around all the things that we look to collect. I think about mm-hmm. whether it's the field of science or things that these subcultures of collecting, it really feels to me like our current world is is one where all this stuff is poised to make a real comeback. I think that obsession has always existed and it's absolutely very prevalent in this story. No one spends 10 years traveling the country in 100 going to like times places where it was 120 degrees digging for rocks without a lot of obsession going on. And I think also that level of ego it it kind of created this scenario where because there was someone else in the field challenging them neither of them would back down until it was too late they they could have gotten out at any time and they would have made their mark had their had their find i think there's also a level of addiction in there because i think that they were just in that they were always looking for that next find that next score that next big thing that we're going to find, like, right, well, I found this one, but the next one's going to be bigger. The next one's going to be better. I'm going to do more. And I think that just, they couldn't stop. That's amazing. I love this. Thank it's very you, cool. Absolutely. I'll leave you with this because I did promise to bring it back to Darwin. Because Darwin was still alive when these two guys were reenacting Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner in the desert. And Darwin actually wrote to Marsh in uh, 18, would have been about 1870. And he told Marsh that the work Marsh had done with the fossils was the best proof towards the theory of evolution that had been presented in the past 20 years since Darwin himself wrote on theory of evolution. That's amazing. Right. And so it is interesting also, Mm -hmm. we glossed over this at first, but dinosaurs are such a powerful part of our popular culture. I mean, I think about growing up and all the dinosaur books I had. And oh, the Jurassic Park, baby. Well, the, I mean, for me, it's way before Jurassic Park. And it's still the fascination I had with dinosaurs growing up. And I and I hadn't really thought about it before that, well, what what happened? You know, when did this happen? Right? Because obviously, the you know, kids growing up in the early 19th yeah. century, you, you weren't dreaming about dinosaurs. I mean, you literally call someone a dinosaur when they're old as dirt. It's just something that's always been there. Yeah, and I and I hadn't thought before about how just the idea and the fascination with dinosaurs came about, and these are the guys who did it. These are the guys who did it. The reason we have, you know, 
just this huge cultural fascination with dinosaurs is because of the work that they did. Because for all that, this competition absolutely ruined their lives. It also spurred them on to go farther, to dig up faster, to publish more. I think if they didn't have the threat that somebody else was going to get there first, they would not have been so driven and we would not have, it would have taken us much longer to get where we are with our knowledge of evolution, dinosaurs, our planet, everything. And might and, and might not have entered our popular culture for what we dream about. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very cool. Thank you, Harper. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something new. And remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting co-workers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at epsilontheory.com.